0: Welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. We will be talking about two of our favorite topics, which have merged corruption in the Metropolitan Police and corruption in Downing Street. They are covering for each other right now. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron?
1: Michael, it's a great pleasure, privilege, honor, measure of distinction to be joining you and our great audience here this evening. The pleasure, the honor
0: is all mine. We also have a section planned for you on tensions between Russia and Ukraine. Lots of incredibly interesting information for you there. All week, we've been counting down to the release of the much-awaited Sue Gray report into Downing Street parties. That report has now been spiked. The Met Police, who originally refused to investigate parties at Downing Street, have now decided their investigation is so important and so sensitive that no one else should be able to publish information relevant to it. The Met released a statement this morning about the request they'd made to Sue Gray. In their statement, they said, For the events the Met is investigating, we asked for minimal reference to be made in the Cabinet Office report. We did not ask for any limitations on other events in the report or for the report to be delayed, but we have had ongoing contact with the Cabinet Office, including on the content of the report, to avoid any prejudice to our investigation. Sue Gray is understood to have agreed to those requests, which means that if she does publish a report, it will be stripped of the information on the most egregious rule breaches that took place in Downing Street. To find out about those, we will have to wait for the police investigation. Boris Johnson will hope any delay could help him out. But for those who value accountability, this move could be even worse. Legal expert David Allen Green tweeted of the Met's decision. This may mean the Sue Gray report falling between two garden chairs. The most damaging stuff glossed at Met request, so only less damaging stuff published in detail. PM cleared. Then, police investigation gets dropped with damaging details still unpublished. Again, PM cleared. That last point is very significant, I think. Not only does the Met's request mean that serious charges won't feature in Gray's report, But moreover, if that investigation, that police investigation, is later dropped, that information might never see the light of day. It's certainly all very convenient for Boris Johnson, and the legal grounds for the move have also raised eyebrows. Barrister Adam Wagner tweeted in response to the decision, I am not a criminal lawyer, so perhaps I am missing something. How would a factual civil service report about events the police is investigating prejudice their investigation? it is absolutely normal for concerns to be raised about prejudice to a criminal trial. That is due to a concern that the jury will be influenced by press coverage and not be sufficiently objective. So we have special rules about jury trials and press coverage. But the police don't, as far as I'm aware, ask journalists not to report on ongoing investigations. And often media will report on the factual circumstances surrounding a police investigation, then clam up once a charge has been brought. The point Adam Wagner makes there seems right. We worry about prejudicing juries because they can be influenced by press statements about innocence or guilt. But there is no jury in this case. In fact, no one has even yet been charged. Outrage has been widespread across all sides of the political spectrum. Tory MP Christopher Chope today said, There is no reason for the Metropolitan Police to be able to require Sue Gray not to issue her report in an unamended way for the benefit of the Prime Minister who ordered that report and for this House, which is eager to see that report. It seems that the Metropolitan Police is usurping its position by seeking to interfere in the affairs of state without there being any criminal offences or any grounds for them carrying out such interference. The SNP's Ian Blackford said this to Sky News.
2: You know, as parliamentarians, we should be speaking with a very clear
1: voice. This report must be published. It must be published in full. Let's make sure that we hold this government, this prime minister to account. We get answers as to what was going on. This corrosive culture of partying around number 10. Let's make sure that we hold this man to account. And I mean, I'll say to colleagues right across the House, particularly Conservatives, they have the power to remove this man. This can't go on any longer. When Cressida
0: Dick belatedly launched a police investigation into Downing Street Party, she said it was necessary to maintain faith in the rule of law. Today's decision has obviously done the opposite. So what is Cressida Dick playing at? One possibility is that this is all the result of incompetence. That's certainly plausible. But could there also be a more sinister explanation? Back in December, when the Met refused to investigate Downing Street parties following revelations in the leaked Allegra Stratton video, Jason Groves from the Daily Mail tweeted, one Tory insider comments, I see Cressida is returning the favour for not being sacked. So the suggestion there, in in that case, Groves was referring to the calls for Dick to resign following the murder of Sarah Everard by a police officer with the Met, a police officer who's with the Met, amid... Public outcry Johnson backed her to the hilt, and Dick kept her job. Is that expenditure of political capital by Boris Johnson to save Dick now paying dividends Aaron, what do you think is going on here? Is this incompetence by the met? Is this Cressida Dick paying Boris Johnson back a favor what's what's going on here
1: Well, it's certainly easy to see how it's a conspiracy It's certainly easy to see that, isn't it? I mean it's certainly easy to insinuate it at the very least. there are obviously very high incentives for crest a dick to let Boris Johnson off the hook here and, like you say, return the favour. Equally, it could be incompetence. And often with these kinds of conspiracies, because a conspiracy doesn't need to be an organised conspiracy where 20 people get in a room and say, we're going to do this. What can happen is that people find their mutual interests are served by behaving in certain ways. And so, you know, somebody might get leaned on, they might be told, look, actually, if you do launch a police investigation, and actually we can mollify and nullify some of the worst aspects of the Sue Gray report, maybe that won't be so bad. What do you think? Okay. I mean, I can do that. It's, you know, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. I'm not, I'm not compromising myself through taking money from somebody. You know, it's a, an explicable course of action. So often these kinds of stories act at the interface of conspiracy and, and, and um, ineptitude. With politics and with public service and with the police, you can never write off ineptitude and incompetence. But I think that's really being very kind at this point. I think with Cresta Dick, she has been given so much leeway in such a remarkable manner. She has been permitted to stay in posts repeatedly, despite clearly being incapable of doing her job. And I think if it was any other industry, quote unquote industry, I think she would have been gone a long time ago. So I think it's quite reasonable to infer that something very untoward is happening here. I don't think that's the David Icke territory. <laughs> I think that's quite normal. And as a result, I think many, many people will be thinking and saying it, not just in the public sphere, not just journalists or Gary Neville on Twitter. I think plenty of normal people will be calling into question the the integrity of the Metropolitan Police Service, not for the first time. But here it's extraordinarily brazen. And like you say, it's coupled with political power in a way that we've
0: not really seen before. What I find most remarkable about this, because there is a sequence of events where you say it's somewhat... I was going to try and be generous, but it's actually really, really, really difficult to rationalise. The police initially said, we don't have enough evidence to investigate rule breaches in in Downing Street. Then it was when Sue Gray showed them evidence, which we already had quite a lot of evidence available publicly, that they said, okay, now we will investigate this. They then initially said that shouldn't affect the publication of the report in full. It was only this morning that they've suddenly done a dramatic U-turn and they said, oh no, actually, Sue Gray can't publish... Her investigations into the events that we are investigating, which are obviously the most egregious ones because they're the ones that potentially broke the law. And what they haven't done is justified why. They've said it could prejudice their investigation. But you'd have thought if you're going to release a statement that says for one, it's a U-turn. You know, if if you're going to U-turn to that level, you kind of need to explain it. And also, if you're going to make a decision which is this politically consequential, you should probably explain it. Yet the Met Police still haven't said how this could prejudice their investigation. So it's kind of, it's really difficult to have anything other than a completely cynical approach, a cynical interpretation of of what has gone on. That to me should just be the bare minimum of any remotely accountable organization. If you make a consequential decision, especially
1: if that reverses the decision you made three days earlier, you should tell us why. They have 70 press officers, right? You know, when it comes to the air war and telling us who is responsible for a crime and how they're on top of things and how the police, you know, the sunshine comes out of their backsides, they're on top of that as a media operation. So the idea they don't have the resources or the know-how to communicate this clearly at the most important possible time, I, I like, like you say, I, I find that very strange. And if they'd done this a week ago, again, you can maybe explain it away. And look, Sue Gray's report was meant to come out two days ago. Then yesterday, have they been pressing back and saying, hold back. You know, we're considering our our kind of options here. Again, we should probably know about that. And and look, this may be a a strange thing to say. These aren't ultimately massive crimes. You know, we're not talking about somebody being murdered. We're not talking about violent crime. We're not talking about armed robbery. We're we're talking about things which politically have immense weight, but legally, less so. Less so. Clearly, politically, they've, they've... a storm rightly, but we're not talking about people going to prison for 20 years. So again, this excuse that they're coming out with for me, but it's easy for me to say this, Michael, and this is where it'd get interesting. I'm, I'm a socialist. I'm very skeptical of police power. I've seen the police up close and personal for 10, 15 years, and I don't trust a word that comes out of their mouths. But I do wonder the, ex- the extent to which you know somebody who's never previously been critical of the police defers to them by nature surely they think something strange is going on here. Surely. Or, that's one option, or they are the most incompetent organisation in Britain, including the Labour Party. Very hard thing to do. So one of those two options, whichever you choose to decide is is the the facts here, I I think they come out very, very poorly, and particularly Crested Dick. I mean, my God, what the hell has this woman got on people? Normally when organisations like the Met, and we have to remember, you know, The top of the met, the leadership has had to resign time after time after time after time because of these kinds of scandals. And Cressida Dick, she's golden. You know, she she should have been sacked or resigned half a dozen times by now, and she's still there. So, of course, I think you're right, Michael. It's it's the reasonable position to be cynical about the motivations at play. Even if they do come up with a good explanation, so they say this
0: is why it would prejudice the case. I I saw on Twitter one. Explanation, which at least was coherent, you know, it wasn't obviously ridiculous. And they were saying by prejudice, they don't necessarily mean prejudice the people who are making a decision about whether or not any law has been broken. But what it might do is if the police are planning to interview someone and they've already read the Sue Gray report, then they could maybe, you know, shape their answers in that interview based on what they've read in the report. So it's giving people prior warning of someone else's conclusions, which they can then feed into their answers to the Metropolitan Police. A bit, I suppose, in a strange way, a bit like when you get witnesses to sort of, well, when witnesses huddle together before they, they speak to the police. Obviously, they've had lots of chances to huddle in Downing Street anyway. But the reason why that doesn't stack up to me in, in this case is because, one, it seems fairly weak. You know, that doesn't seem like that should be a red line. Oh, that would be such a serious prejudice to the case that we can't possibly allow Sue Gray to release her report. So it doesn't seem that serious. But also, the whole justification for this police investigation, as was explained by Cresta Dick just earlier this week, wasn't that this was a serious breach of the law and it's the police's job to uphold the law, so they're just doing their job upholding the law. No, she gave us an actual political justification for opening this investigation. And I think it was a correct one, right? So she said, we're opening this investigation even though we don't normally investigate past breaches of, COVID rules when all the, the punishment would be would be a a, a fixed penalty notice, so, so a fine. But this situation is different because the legitimacy of the law is in question, because it was the people who wrote the laws who are suspected to have broken them in this case. So she's given a political reason for starting the investigation. Then by Friday, they've made a decision which completely undermines that whole justification for launching it in the first place, because this has damaged the legitimacy of the rule of law more than if they just sat at home all week, right? And it just makes no sense, Aaron. I'm trying, I'm trying. you know what I'm like, I normally try and be fair to people I disagree with. So I'm normally trying to say, oh, no, th- this must make sense on one level. And I'm really trying today and
1: I just can't do it. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? You know, it's, look, are we so fatigued from these kinds of stories that we sort of can't <laughs> make sense to them anymore? Because it it does genuinely feel like 10 to 15 years ago, the leadership of the Metropolitan Police Service could not get away with something like this. And it's unclear to me, and we'll talk about this later on on a different topic on the show, whether the the culture of Boris Johnson and the Conservatives that they're setting, is that now all pervasive through our institutions in this country? I don't buy that argument. People like James O'Brien would make it. But I, I think there clearly is something to the argument, which is, these people, Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson, by the way, unless the Conservative Party MPs in Parliament want him to go, he's going nowhere. He's going nowhere. Doesn't matter what journalists do. Doesn't matter what the polls say. We don't have a separation of powers. All power in this country is in Parliament, parliamentary sovereignty. And the biggest party in Parliament decides who governs and who the PM is. And if they don't want to get rid of Boris Johnson, he ain't going nowhere. That sense of impunity, which is just so obvious and it's brazen. I feel like Cressida Dick's kind of embodying it too, but it's like, hold on. Hold on, Crested Dick. You're, you're the head of the Met. You aren't the Prime Minister. You, aren't kind of, you don't have the good fortune of having that kind of authority as a result of effect, effectively a feudal relic from the 19th century. That You're meant to be the head of a modern police service. My God. So what does it take for Crested Dick to go? You know we, we know, we know the reasons as to why there's not a formal mechanism by which Boris Johnson can go unless his own MPs want him to. What about Crested Dick? What does this person have to do to go? It's an extraordinary uh, question to ask, and I don't know the answer. We're
0: gonna look in depth at the Met Police and Cressida Dick's record in, in one moment. First of all, I just want us to, I suppose, pause on what you think the political consequences might be here. There's sort of two sort of interpretations going around on on social media and from Britain's political journalists. So the the one is to say this is going to be helpful to, to Boris Johnson because it's new to the Sue Gray report. It's going to give him a chance to sort of try and recover his reputation. Basically, everything's been kicked into the long grass, which is something that politicians normally prefer. The other interpretation is that this is just delaying the inevitable and it's dragging out the pain for the Conservative Party. Boris Johnson is going to, because of this delay, remain Prime Minister for weeks and months his reputation is going to become ever more inextricable from the reputation of the Conservative Party. And by delaying the inevitable, as I've said, is, is ultimately going to benefit Labour and, and be of detriment to whoever
1: replaces Johnson as Prime Minister. I mean, my, my response to that, Michael, would be, look, calling these things now is is pointless. You go back to May, Keir Starmer looked like he was in his last legs in terms of being Labour leader. You know, he... Here, some was 400 votes away from, I think, probably having to quit if they lost badly in Spain. So things move very quickly. I don't think it suits Labour that Boris Johnson stays there necessarily. I think I agree with John McTernan on this. I saw him tweet this a few weeks ago. Best thing for Labour is that Boris Johnson goes now. The sooner, the better, because ultimately I think the runners and riders coming in behind him—Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak, and so on—they don't want to head into the May elections. They want that behind them. Ideally for them, he would go in the summer, health reasons, family, whatever. And then they have a new leader ahead of uh, their conference in the autumn, certainly before the end of the year. So the idea that him staying helps Labour, I don't know. I mean, I think most people would want him to stay till May anyway. I think ultimately what matters for Boris Johnson is if the May local elections are so bad, you know, if they hemorrhage councillors across the country, particularly in red hall seats and 60 MPs think I'm going to lose my seat because of this guy, and I know that won't happen if he's replaced by somebody else, then they'll get rid of him. You know, Right now, that's not demonstrable. Right now, they're looking at polls. And actually, you know what? Politicians shouldn't really look at polls two and a half, two years away from a general election. The polls didn't tell us very much about the 2015 outcome, two years out, definitely not. They didn't tell us about the 2017 election, two years out. They didn't tell us about the 2019 election, two years out. So I understand why they won't jump right now. I think that changes after May and the local elections. We'll see. But again, equally, if it's not, If it's not extraordinarily bad, and now we're talking about expectations management, if Labour don't really hammer things, I think actually Labour, the Lib Dems and the Greens do really well between them, depending on where you are in the country. But if the Tories do sort of slightly better than expected, you can see how that becomes formulated in a kind of Boris Johnson recovery story. That may sound outlandish, Michael, but that's already what Laura Koonsberg is doing at the BBC. Articles about, you know, Boris is fighting back. She was never so charitable when it was Jeremy Corbyn. You wonder why? So I think with that assistance from the media, he could hold on. Yeah, I, I don't buy that argument. Equally, look, it's a fool's errand to you know, confidently predict anything right now, particularly in the context of COVID, high inflation, Brexit. I think 2022 is, uh, 2022 is, a, is incredibly unpredictable. But Labour certainly shouldn't take for granted, Oh, if this happens, then we're, we're in the money. Because I think that's a very, very risky thing to do. The Mets' decision to bury the most damaging parts of the Sue Gray report has
0: been met with outrage across the political spectrum. That's a good thing. However, not all righteous outrage is equally persuasive, even when targeted at a genuinely outrageous thing. My example for you today, Tisky Sour viewers, comes from LBC's James O'Brien. He tweeted, Johnson's ability to sully and corrupt Everything and everyone he comes into contact with has now extended to the Metropolitan Police. It's extended to the Metropolitan Police. This, comrades, is the textbook example, the undisputed apogee of the limits of pundit liberalism. That's because O'Brien has so nearly got the point. The Met covering up Downing Street parties is very bad, and it may well have resulted from pressure from Boris Johnson. But what O'Brien gets wrong is just as important. By saying Boris Johnson has sullied and corrupted the Metropolitan Police, he's implying it was neither of those things before our bumbling idiot of a Prime Minister entered Downing Street. And that is unvarnished nonsense. The Met wasn't corrupted by Boris Johnson. It has always been rotten to the core. And if you don't believe me, James, settle down for a short history lesson. Between 1978 and 1982, Operation Countryman uncovered widespread corruption in the Met. John Alderson was a Deputy Commissioner of Scotland Yard until 1973. Mr Alderson, you are a former Deputy assistant, assistant Commissioner in the Yard. What's your impression of the extent of corruption these days? I'm sorry to say that my uh, impression of the extent of corruption these days is that in spite of all the tremendous uh, work that Robert Mark did, it's more institutionalized than it was. What what, what exactly do you mean by institutionalized? By institutionalized, I mean, formally, it was in pockets here and there. But I think there are now uh, certain sections uh, of the CID, certain uh, cohorts, if you like, uh, where it's accepted, where the investigations in the past have failed or been frustrated, and I think it's just become for some of them a, a way of life. But independent officers involved in the investigation of the Metropolitan Police thought the corruption went almost to the top. Arthur Hamilton led the inquiry.
1: But is that degree of corruption that you suggest does now exist in the Met? Is that degree of corruption able to flourish without the knowledge? or even the assistance of senior officers in the yard? Indeed, it cannot flourish without the knowledge and probably assistance
0: of senior officers up to a certain level. What? I'm not speaking about the very senior officers in the yard. I'm speaking about the senior operational officers. Much of the corruption in the Met was thought to be tied to a culture Freemasonry. In 1988, Dale Campbell Savers, then Labour MP for Workington, now sitting in the House of Lords, said this in Parliament. Over the years, serious allegations have repeatedly been made that Freemasons in the police force have received preferential treatment over appointments, promotion, disciplinary procedures, and most important, that they may not be impartially investigating criminal cases in which other Freemasons are involved. One example was Operation Countryman in the mid-1970s when over 250 police officers were forced to resign and many faced criminal charges after investigations revealed that police membership of particular lodges formed the nucleus of a criminal conspiracy. And it gets worse. Met Top Brass and the Department of Public Prosecutions were thought to have repeatedly obstructed Operation Countryman. Ultimately, only two police officers were convicted. Then there is the case of Daniel Morgan, a private investigator who was murdered with an axe in a pub car park in 1987. There have so far been five investigations into Daniel's murder, but it remains unsolved. In April 1987, six people were arrested for Morgan's murder, including two police officers, but all were released without charge. In 2009, five people were finally charged with Daniel's murder, including a detective assigned to the original investigation. But the case would eventually be dropped by the then head of the CPS, Keir Starmer. Ten years later, in 2021, 34 years after Daniel's murder, and after repeated interference from both Priti Patel and The Met, the findings of an independent inquiry into the case were published.
2: We believe that concealing or denying failings... For the sake of an organisation's public image is dishonesty on the part of the organisation for reputational benefit. This constitutes a form of institutional corruption.
0: Met Commissioner Dick came in for personal criticism for obstructing the report, but her assistant commissioner stayed loyal.
3: Should she resign?
0: No. The commissioner has been absolutely clear we must do all we can to support the panel. We must give them as much access as we reasonably can to all of the information they require.
2: Yet, Dame Cressida Dick's
1: initial refusal to grant the panel access to the police internal data system and the most sensitive information.
0: Well, there's always a balance to be struck and and this is the the burden that senior leaders have. We have a duty, of course, to protect the identity of witnesses, of informants, of police uh, undercover officers. Nothing to see here, governor. Corruption is, of course, not the only cancer running through the Met. In 1993, 18-year-old Stephen Lawrence was murdered by five racists while he waited for a bus. But the investigation was not taken seriously. The suspects, who had a known record of racially motivated knife attacks, were not arrested for two weeks after the Met had identified them. And then the charges against them were dropped by the Crown Prosecution Service due to lack of evidence. This is Stephen's mother, Doreen.
3: I just thought to myself, well, somebody's been murdered, you know, they're gonna go out and look for his killers. But as the days pass, then you realize that it's a completely different thing, that Stephen was a black boy and the interest was not there. It
0: would take nearly 20 years for two of the five suspects, Gary Dobson and David Norris, to be convicted. And in 1999, the McPherson Report concluded that the investigation of Stephen Lawrence's murder was botched. Not just because the individual officers involved had racist attitudes, but because the Met as a whole was institutionally racist. 20 years later, Cressida Dick thinks it's all water under the bridge.
1: So you accept there are individual racists or cases of racism, but what you deny is institutional racism, the idea that there is structural racism in the force and in the way you police. And that is at odds with what every other organisation in the world, it seems, has done since George Floyd, which is to look at itself and say, yes, we've got problems. Um, Why are you going in the other way? You seem to be in denial. So we have zero tolerance of racist behaviour within The Met. Uh, Just
0: last week, somebody was sacked for uh, racist conduct Uh, and everybody knows that that is the case. We um, embraced, if you like, the uh, challenge that was set to us 20 years ago by Sir William McPherson
1: in the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, in which he came up with a definition of institutional racism. I was the person charged with implementing the recommendations and I'm very proud of what we did. I think we've come a very, very, very
3: long way.
0: And yet only a year after this interview, two police officers were jailed for dehumanising two black murder victims. In June 2020, sisters Nicole Smallman and Bieber Henry were murdered in a London park. The two police officers assigned to guard their bodies photographed them and passed the pictures to a group of 41 colleagues labelling them dead birds. Their mother, Mina Mormon, spoke to one James O'Brien in 2021. When you get a sense of um, how prevalent this is, this isn't a one off. I object to um, it being said, this is one rotten apple. This is not. This is, this behaviour
2: is not uncommon, it's commonplace.
0: You have to wonder how carefully James O'Brien was listening. As well as its attitude to race, the case of Smallman and Henry also shone a light on misogyny in the Met. We had another chilling reminder of that in 2021. That was when Sarah Everard was murdered by Wayne Cousins, a serving Met police officer. He placed her under a false arrest, put handcuffs on her, and drove her to a woodland where he strangled her. It later emerged that the Met had failed to investigate free accusations of inappropriate conduct and indecent exposure against him. In the wake of that murder, the Met police were criticised for violent crackdowns on vigils held in London. They were also criticised for advising women that if they were stopped by an officer who aroused suspicion, they could try shouting out to a passerby, running into a house, knocking on a door, waving a bus down, or, if you are in the position to do so, calling 999. That ridiculous advice led to calls for Cressida Dick's resignation, but backed by Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, she refused to go. Another egregious example of institutional misogyny in the police was the spy cop scandal, where multiple undercover police were found to have had relationships with women they were spying on. I had a relationship with a man that I knew to be, Mark Cassidy, from 1995 until He disappeared in 2000. We lived together for four of those years. Um, I was involved in an organisation called the Colin Roach Centre in Hackney, which was involved in anti-fascist, anti-racist and police monitoring. And
1: then that relationship lasted a number of years, as you say, and then what
3: happened? Then it was quite a prolonged exit strategy. Um,
0: But as far as I was aware at the time, he became very depressed and um, he had to get away, and he disappeared. I came home from work one day
3: and he wasn't there.
0: Campaigners have identified at least 30 women who were unknowingly in relationships with undercover officers, some of whom have had children. An inquiry into the events is yet to report, but the Met have already acknowledged culpability.
1: It has become apparent that some officers acting undercover while seeking to infiltrate protest groups, entered into long-term intimate sexual relationships with women, which were abusive, deceitful, manipulative, and wrong. I acknowledge that these relationships were a violation of the women's human rights, an abuse of police power, and caused significant trauma. I unreservedly apologize on behalf of the Metropolitan Police Service. These are only some
0: of the ways that the Met have shown themselves to be corrupt, and indeed, rotten to the core on this show we recently covered the homophobia that allowed stephen port to get away with the murder of young gay men in london and the rank misogyny and violence that was inflicted on koshka duff after she was arrested for handing a legal defense card to a young black man being stopped and searched but i guess if you're a wealthy liberal pundit james o'brien partygate could be the first time you notice just how corrupt the met have always been Aaron, will Partygate be the moment the penny finally
1: drops for Britain's liberal establishment that the Met is rotten to the core? You'd certainly hope so, Michael. Um, I I suspect it's quite possible purely because it's affected them. Uh, And that's not to dismiss them or admonish them. That's just generally how life works. Once something affects you and you see it and you experience it, then you, you start to take it very seriously. Hitherto, the most egregious examples of police violence, intimidation, not adhering to process, themselves breaking the law, have generally been applied to people of color, working class people, a minor strike, football fans. Uh, for the liberal intelligentsia, <clears throat> that hasn't been the experience. But I think increasingly, with the gendered nature of violence that we're seeing in the stories over the last 12, 18 months, two years, and of course, like you say, Koshka Duffy just this week, Koshka Duff, rather. Just this week, an extraordinary story, an extraordinary story. We never would have heard about it had she not had the unique tenacity and persistence and perseverance to seek justice. There are thousands of stories like hers, Michael. She had to endure eight years to get to the truth. And I I think stories like that cut through a hell of a lot because people look at, effectively, a a white middle-class woman and they sympathize. very different experience when it's trade unionists on a picket line or uh, people of color. So I, I think it should change, most certainly. I think it could change. Will it change? I think yes. I mean, there are people, I think, Michael, if my timeline is anything to go by, who I would sort of see as kind of like classically centrist Twitter accounts and influencers and authors and writers. And I think the penny has dropped with them that the police are deeply profoundly corrupt, maybe just the Metropolitan Police Service and they can probably they can probably sort of hide that off from the rest of policing in the u k Certain forces are better than others, purely by virtue of the kinds of places they police. I'm from Dorset, you know the challenges of policing in Dorset are very different to the west midlands uh, south yorkshire, the Mets uh so you have i think a, a range of Problems with the police. I think racialized policing is clearly going to be a bigger problem when you have larger uh, minority communities, like with the Met, like with West Midlands, Greater Manchester Police, and so on. So I think that would be my my major concern. Is yes, I think people are going to view the police as corrupt. I think they're going to begin to talk about structural challenges rather than a few bad apples. The question is how universal is that? Is that limited to the Met? I think the Met has major problems. I really do, Michael. I think the Metropolitan Police Service is now becoming shorthand for. Institutional dysfunction in this country, really. Uh, and that I think is being articulated by opinion makers and influencers who never would have dreamed of saying that five, 10 years ago. It's very new and it it, it should be welcomed. But of course, you know, how, how far does that critique go? And that's the interesting question. Because it's not going to be resolved by Crested it going. And getting somebody else in, we saw that repeatedly over the last twenty years with the Metropolitan Police Service. I think there needs to be a fundamental rethinking, particularly around public order policing, and then the other issues about around race and gendered violence. But look, I mean, I've I've actually been at the I've been at the kind of the cutting edge of this myself, Michael. I remember in 2011, a friend of mine he was arrested by the police. He'd done nothing wrong. I tried to pull him away. I got arrested for obstruction. And these police, four or five of them, were willing to lie under oath. This guy was facing being um, sent back to the United States, where he comes from. He was doing a PhD here. He had a life here. His life would have been destroyed. These people who'd never met him before were happy to destroy his life. And they were lying, Michael. All of them. All of them were lying. And the problem is, two or three were leading on it, and the rest of their colleagues were enabling it and making it possible. So I've seen firsthand, they're willing to destroy some person's life for no particular reason. I think there's something profoundly wrong going on here. So what I'd say is all those extraordinary cases you've just highlighted there, Michael, it is the, the tip of an iceberg. You know We can't see the vast majority of this. And I think, it, yes, it has an institutional basis, but also the kinds of people attracted to the police force, people of an authoritarian personality type, well, they're given free reign. And I think we need to talk about how do you hold these people accountable in a meaningful sense? And I I don't mean them regulating themselves like presently happens. When the police break the law, they should go to prison and it doesn't happen nearly enough. So hopefully we can begin to have an adult conversation around what 21st century policing begins to look like. I hope so. It's about time.
0: There is a tendency for people with authoritarian personalities to join the police. I think it's also important to say, you know, critiques of the Metropolitan Police doesn't necessarily suggest that anyone who goes to work for the Metropolitan Police is a bad person. I'm sure lots of people who join the force do so because they, they're they trying to make it better. Although with the people at the top who are at the top, that does seem like it's gonna be a bit of a challenge. Um, I think the tip of the iceberg point you make is super important because it's difficult to emphasize quite how much all of the examples of sort of police failures and police corruption that we went through in this section is down to the relentless hard work and bravery of the people who were at the sharp end of that corruption or the sharp end of those failures because none of those things would have come to light. You wouldn't have heard a single apology from police for any of those cases if there hadn't been people working for years and years and years, constantly being rebuffed by the police and having to devote a large proportion of their life to get the police to admit what clearly happened. Doreen Lawrence campaigned for decades. Koshka Duff, who we had on the show this week, as Aaron said, campaigned for years. Mina Smallman has been incredible sort of going out, speaking to the media, constantly putting pressure on the police because of the way that they treated her murdered daughters. These would all have just been brushed under the carpet, were it not for the bravery of, of those people. The spy cops, obviously another example where the people have, you know, campaigned so bravely to, to get justice to, or to get the truth to come out. You know, it still hasn't completely come out, but they've made some real progress there. The other thing I just want to bring up is, yeah, I think something which this... Incident today highlights, and something that potentially actually we don't talk enough about, and which isn't reported on enough, is how one of the huge problems here is the incestuous relationship between the Metropolitan Police and the government of the day. Because what we have seen over the past few years with Cressida Dick keeping her job after failing so many times, I've never seen someone fail so often and retain their position, potentially other than Boris Johnson. And she has been protected by government. Now the Metropolitan Police are protecting government it, it it does seem like there needs to be way more structural independence between the people who occupy downing street and the people who occupy scotland yard i mean the fact that they're sort of 100 meters from each other probably doesn't help aaron how do you think you could go about detaching power in the police from power in the government so that they don't just seem to cover for each other in this incredibly cozy and i think destructive way
1: I think the thing you're talking about there with geographical proximity, I think, is a huge problem for Britain, right? You can go to 10 Downing Street, you've got police there, you've got armed guards, you go over the road, Westminster, police everywhere. Like you say, go two minutes, you're down at Scotland Yard. Ten minutes on the underground the other way, you've got News Corporation offices. You go five minutes the other way, you've got the BBC. And these people think they can just ignore the rest of the country, which, broadly speaking, they can as we see repeatedly. So I think clearly there needs to be a rethinking about, look, if it was up to me, I wouldn't even have our administrative capital in London. I think getting politicians and policymakers away from media power and the police and those kinds of civil society organizations pulling them in, I don't think that's healthy at all. It's a very small thing and that's kind of uh, orthogonal to this conversation, but I think it would help. You 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 sort of hinted at it. I think fundamentally, Michael, it is about, I hate this word because I've said it earlier, the C word, culture. You know, when people say culture, you know that they're not serious about a solution. But going back to what you said, good people join the police. I'm sure good people do join the police, Michael. But the problem is, go back to that story of Ashok Kumar, which I mentioned. You've got two two police officers basically willing to lie, and none of their colleagues are willing to call them out. So if you've got eight people who aren't bad people, but they don't want to stand out, they don't want to risk losing their jobs, because they know that even if their colleagues get found out, they're not going to be punished. So where's the incentives, to be honest? right? The only th- all that's going to happen is I'm going to lose credibility with my colleagues. I won't get promotion. You know, I'll probably get bullied at work. Why should I be the good person here? So I-, I think you have a problem, Michael, which is to say, and I don't believe in a few bad apples, but I think the problem is they do determine where that organization goes to repeat. Ashok Kumar, people can Google this. It was a story. He got away with it, by the way, because somebody fortunately recorded it all on their phone, and then this is submitted as evidence, and the police realize, oh, I can't lie under oath. Okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to not proceed anymore. We're going to drop the charges. What happens to those police officers? Nothing. So this morning, you were willing to lie under oath and destroy somebody's life, but now you're not going to, and there were no consequences. Nothing happens. So there are huge costs if you're willing to stand up and criticise your colleagues, but there aren't huge costs if you're willing to lie and send innocent people down. I think when that's the case, Michael, very hard to see how the police moves forward and does its job properly. I agree with everything you've said concretely
0: there. One thing I do want to push back on is I think what you have just explained is why you were initially correct, I think this was on last Friday's show, to say anyone who says the problem is culture is missing the point, because what you've described is not a culture it's an incentive structure because there is no accountability yeah so i think you should stick to your initial dictum which is don't explain mm. problems as as cultural because the reason the culture exists is because there is no accountability if there was a structure whereby acting according to prejudice was punished then that culture wouldn't flourish so let's keep our focus on first. the people at the top let's keep our focus to the to the structures because i do think if we say all oh, the problem is cultural that lets them off the hook i'm agreeing with you aaron to argue against you. We're going to go on to our final story for the day. Is Russia set to invade Ukraine? Britain and the United States have suggested it's an imminent possibility after Russia amassed more than 100,000 troops on the country's border. Of course, in many senses, Ukraine is already engaged in a military conflict with Russia and has been for nine years. In 2014, after the Maidan uprising toppled the government of Viktor Yanukovych, Russia responded by backing separatists in the east of the country and by annexing Crimea. The west of the country is dominated by ethnic Ukrainians and remains under control of the government in Kiev. To the east, Russian-backed separatists control the Russian-speaking Donbass region, and Russia has annexed Crimea. It's an ongoing conflict which has so far severely destabilised Ukraine, prompted Western sanctions against Russia and left over 13,000 people dead. But it has mostly been seen in Russia as a geopolitical success. And now, Putin wants to push any gains made further. In negotiations which followed the recent build-up of troops on the Ukrainian border, Putin made the following demands to the United States. That NATO rule out further enlargement, including by allowing Ukraine to join, that all NATO forces should leave those countries which joined the alliance after 1997, and that NATO cease all military drills in Ukraine, Eastern Europe, Caucasus states, and Central Asia. Those priorities from Russia are long-standing, and on the face of it, they appear reasonable. At the end of the Cold War, Soviet leaders received verbal assurances that NATO would not expand into the former Eastern Bloc, which Russia believed would remain neutral. But NATO broke that promise. In 1999, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Hungary, all formerly members of the Warsaw Pact, joined NATO. Then in 2004, seven more Eastern European countries joined the alliance, and that wave of expansion included Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, all former members of the USSR, which sit on Russia's border. These developments have been strongly opposed by Vladimir Putin, and that such moves would upset the Russians should come as no surprise. In 1997, America's most famous Cold War diplomat, George Kennan, warned against NATO's eastern expansion, saying, "...it would inflame nationalistic anti-Western and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion, have an adverse effect." on the development of Russian democracy, restore the atmosphere of Cold War to East-West relations and impel Russian foreign policy in directions decidedly not to our liking. Those predictions were all borne out in subsequent events. And from this perspective, any tension in Ukraine might be seen as ultimately the fault of the West. Unsurprisingly, the Americans and NATO don't see it that way. Anthony Blinken is US Secretary of State. He described the principles underlying America's rejection of Putin's demands.
3: We make clear that there are core principles that we are committed to uphold and defend, including Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity and the right of states to choose their own security arrangements and alliances. Again, without going to the specifics uh, of the document, I can tell you that it reiterates what we said uh, publicly, uh, for many weeks, and in a sense, for many uh, many years, uh, that um, we will uphold the principle of NATO's uh, open door. There is no change in the, the, in, in the, the U.S. or NATO there, position in this document. The first of all, uh, there, there is uh, there is no change. There will be no change. Second, we reiterate the that principle. Uh, of course. IT IS FOR NATO, uh, NOT THE UNITED STATES UNILATERALLY, TO um, DISCUSS uh, THE uh, the, open door, the OPEN DOOR POLICY. THESE ARE DECISIONS THAT NATO MAKES AS AN ALLIANCE, NOT THE UNITED STATES un- uh, UNILATERALLY. BUT FROM OUR PERSPECTIVE, uh, I, I CAN'T BE MORE CLEAR. Uh, NATO'S DOOR IS OPEN, REMAINS OPEN, uh, AND uh, THAT IS OUR COMMITMENT.
0: So the Americans are rejecting Putin's demand based on a principle, that it is in any country's sovereign decision which alliances they choose to join. And if Ukraine, like Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia before them, want to join NATO, no non-NATO country should have any say in that. Again, on the face of it, it's not an entirely unreasonable position. Although one might do well to remember how the US reacted when its neighbor Cuba made its own sovereign decision to host weapons from their Soviet allies. And one might also imagine how the Americans would respond if China stationed troops in Mexico. Of course, any focus solely on the interests of superpowers risks overlooking the concerns and desires of the people who would be most affected by any war. That's the Ukrainians themselves. German broadcaster D.W. spoke to people in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, on the rising tensions. I am very worried. Things are not easy in our country at this moment. But I hope the diplomats can find an agreement and that there will be peace in Ukraine. Of course I'm worried. There are people living here, and they are in danger.
1: I think nothing will happen. It's just the usual threats from the big bandit next door. There's nothing we can do. I have to work and feed my family. I don't have time to think about what I will do if something happens.
0: For an idea of public opinion, which is a bit more scientific, we can look to polling conducted by the Kiev Institute of Sociology. It shows that while Ukrainians once felt positive towards Russia, that reversed after the annexation of Crimea. Currently, the population is evenly divided on whether its attitude to Russia is generally good or bad. More concerning for Putin is how Russian actions have increased support for Ukraine joining NATO. Before 2014, Ukrainians generally opposed NATO membership, but according to a recent academic study, there is now a solid majority in favour of joining. So that's the big picture. What it doesn't answer, though, is why this build-up in tensions is happening right now. I spoke earlier today to Leonid Rogozin, an independent journalist who worked for 12 years in the Moscow office of the BBC and who has written extensively on Ukraine.
2: Vladimir Putin is uh, famous for what uh, British analyst uh, Mark Galliotti calls um, autocracy. He's basically uh, improvising all the time, is not proactive, but uh, reactive. In this particular case, I think he was reacting uh, in his trademark uh, heavy-handed manner to a change of tack in the behaviour of um, our Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, who used to be sort of a dovish uh, leader of Ukraine, uh, prone to compromise um, with, with Russia. But uh, once President Joe Biden Came into office uh, early last year, uh, Vladimir Zelensky suddenly changed into a uh, Hulk and he um, uh, launched a clampdown on pro Russian politicians and pro Russian TV channels in Ukraine. He also started talking about uh, membership action uh, plan for Ukraine, uh, for uh, for NATO.
0: So according to Rogozin, it was a changed approach in Kiev and Washington that prompted a reaction from Moscow and which has now led Putin to seek to renegotiate Europe's entire security architecture. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that if there is an escalation, Ukraine or the US are solely to blame.
2: I mean, it is always important to remember that it was Russia which uh, invaded Ukraine in the first place in 2014 by annexing uh, Crimean Peninsula and by instigating the war in uh, Donbas, uh, and uh, then um, and that war resulted in 2015 uh, after two uh, humiliating defeats, uh, defeats of the Ukrainian army at the hands of the Russian-backed rebels. It resulted in a truce and uh, the, the so-called Minsk agreements, which uh, were not favorable for Ukraine, which were essentially imposed on Ukraine by Russia. Ukraine. Throughout those years, uh, since the end of the hot phase of, uh, of the war, it has been trying to not so much to ditch uh, Minsk agreements, but to alter them somehow in, in its favor.
0: The Wilson Center an American Think Tank explained why Ukraine might seek to amend the Minsk Accords. They write, the Minsk agreement stipulate establishing a ceasefire and separating the opposing military forces, providing a special constitutional regime for the Donbass with requisite amending of Ukraine's constitution, and the holding of elections in the non-controlled territory, with Kiev thereafter to have control over the Russia-Ukraine border in Donbass. In this way, the Russia-backed separatists in Donbass could become a political force in Ukraine, quite likely under the control of the Kremlin, with the chance of gaining representation in parliament and eventually executive power. So that's why Ukraine wants to renegotiate Minsk. But why make this move now? There are two theories here. First, a more assertive US president means Ukraine has a stronger ally when standing up to Russia. And second, the imminent planned opening of Nord Stream 2 means this could be Ukraine's last chance. Nord Stream 2 is a project set to dramatically increase the amount of gas Russia can export to Western Europe, and would end Russia's reliance on Ukraine as a transit state. Work on the pipeline finished last September, but Gazprom is still awaiting approval from European regulators before it can open the taps and start pumping gas. If Ukraine wants the West to use a threat to cancel Nord Stream 2 as leverage against Russia, they need them to use that leverage very soon.
1: I think you've done a really great job, Michael, of of communicating both sides of the argument. Which is, you have the Russian perspective, which, and both of these have to be listened to if you want to make sense of things. You don't have to agree with both of them. Obviously, that's impossible. They're diametrically opposed, but you you need to at least engage with those arguments to have a a, a reasonable understanding of what could happen and why. There's the Russian argument and there's the Ukrainian argument. The Ukrainian argument makes sense to us quite easily because, you know, we talk about national sovereignty and sovereign states should determine what military alliances they're in and who they buy weapons from and whether or not they host foreign militaries and so on. And I think that's a reasonable argument to make. And what we don't hear as often is the Russian argument, which is, look, we were invaded three times by the great powers from 1810 or whatever it was when Napoleon's marched to Moscow, 1812, got obviously the 1920s after the Russian revolution. You have 20 foreign powers deploying troops during the Russian Civil War to remove the revolutionary government. And of course, you have, after 1941, invasion of uh, the Soviet Union by the Third Reich. Immensely destructive, it must be said. So you've got these three wars. And I think that we have to kind of understand better the sensibilities that are leveraged by Putin and Russian politicians domestically to say, well, look, we've had the experience of invasion and occupation repeatedly. As Russia has done to elsewhere, I'm not, I'm not sort of minimizing that, but I'm talking about how this plays out with the domestic audience. And then we've got a country next door, which is the Ukraine, which has been seen uh, as part of the Russian-speaking civilization for centuries. You know, the, the central city of, of, of Rus was Kiev. And, you know, imagine kind of Winchester for Anglo-Saxon kind of culture, you know, and all of a sudden actually people say, well, actually, it's not, not actually in the same culture as cultural sphere as London. And this particular country, Ukraine, now wants to join NATO, increasingly so, and it could host potentially missiles, pointed at Russia. Again, for a country that's been through those three invasions since 1812, which has had this historic relationship to Ukraine, I can, you have to understand why that's a big deal. And you have to understand how that could be leveraged by domestic politicians for their own political gains, which I'm, I'm under absolutely no illusion. That's what Putin is doing. And that's very powerful. And so I can sort of see both arguments here, which is to say, there's a there's a sphere of influence which Russia has. Does that undermine Ukrainian sovereignty? Absolutely. Ukrainians deserve better than that. What I don't like, however, is the hypocrisy that comes from the European Union. We don't believe in spheres of influence, really. You have, you know, you know, you have like near abor- abroad programs. You have kind of neighborhood arrangements with countries in North Africa and and Eastern Europe and sort of Western Asia, effectively countries like Georgia, Azerbaijan. So you can have a sphere of influence, but the, the Russians can't. So I, I do think it's important to see both sides of this argument. Personally, you have to come down on, on the argument that says, of course, Ukraine is a sovereign government. If its government is democratically elected, it has the right to join whichever military alliance it wants to. But I think equally you have to grasp the fact that, well, the Russians aren't going to like that. And they may do things like cut off energy supplies. And again, another thing which does irritate me is people say, oh, well, if we get Russia out of SWIFT, which is a huge act of economic isolation, cutting them off from a big part of the global financial architecture, if we do that, then they won't export energy to us. Of course they're not going to export energy. What, you want them to do it for free? You know, It's like, we can use our leverage, but they can't use theirs. And I think, again, as political analysts, you have to look at these things objectively and understand why people are acting in a certain way. I think you laid that out very, very clearly, Michael. It is very complicated. Um, I do fall down on the argument that, Ukraine's a sovereign nation, and they should determine their own future. But I also think this idea that Putin is acting without any consent from the Russian people, that he isn't drawing upon a wellspring of ideas and themes in Russian history, and he's not leveraging them for political benefit, I think is very naive. And again, Vladimir Putin is very popular in Russia. You know, like, this, is not, this is not fake news. The best polling data we've got from companies that aren't even particularly favorable to him shows that he's a popular leader, less so than he was, say, four or five years ago. And there's an argument that every time you get diminishing popularity for Vladimir Putin, you get a war. We saw it in uh, Georgia in 2008. We saw it in the Ukraine with events of 2014. But I think it is important to see both sides of this. That doesn't mean you minimize sort of uh, the ethics involved or, who, or who's right and wrong. I think you can have that. You can have a very strong idea of who's in the right and who's in the wrong. But these things are, in, like you say, complicated. And I think learning as much as you possibly can also helps. What's really interesting, Michael, I'll finish with this, and I think, you know, you're getting the, the those charts in terms of changing public opinion around NATO, hugely important. Before 2014, there was no real mass consent in Ukraine to join NATO. For the EU, it was very different. And I always found that very strange around the Maidan protests in 2014. We want to join NATO and we want to join the EU and these are the two, you know, these are the same thing. I thought that was a big strategic mistake. I thought the Ukraine could have joined the EU without joining NATO, and that, that could have been a middle ground. That's not happened. I think that was probably a, an act of overreach by policymakers in Washington um, to encourage that. But we are where we are. And like you say, I, I do buy the argument that, the, that Ukraine now isn't kind of borrowed time to make the salient and to make their move, because Russia will find it a hell of a lot easier to isolate them in 18 months with regards to Nord Stream.
0: NATO is not going to let them join NATO partly. And I think this is potentially what was part of Putin's strategy because NATO won't accept a member which is currently in a conflict and Ukraine is clearly currently in a conflict. So Putin did get his way in in that sense. He did sort of create facts on the ground, which made Ukraine joining NATO virtually impossible at this point. But still, the Americans won't rule it out. Or I mean, there are some NATO members, for example, Germany, who would be more than happy to rule it out. I suppose one thing I just add to that, because... I absolutely agree. Obviously, sovereign nations have the right to request to join any military alliance. That's what sovereignty means. But military alliances also have the right to reject those applications, right? So, the idea that the open door policy, which is to say anyone who wants to join NATO can join NATO, the idea that that's just respecting sovereignty, I think is a little silly because what the what NATO should be able to say is, "Look, yeah, it's perfectly legitimate that you want to join us, but sorry, we promised the former Soviet leaders, that we wouldn't expand onto their borders. You're on their borders. So we're going to have to find some different relationship we can have whereby we can still trade, we can still have some concerns for your security. But obviously, you can't join our military bloc because we told those guys we wouldn't. So I think on a moral level, that'd be clearly an option. Obviously, NATO doesn't decide its members on a moral level anyway. They're not particularly interested in country sovereignty. They wanted to move right up to Russia because they wanted to contain... Russia. So Russia has every interest or every reason to feel insecure about that, even if Putin here is just as much motivated by shoring up his own popularity in Russia, which is rapidly declining over the past couple of years. So we're not going to give you an easy answer tonight on Tisky Sour, but I hope we have given you a concise introduction into what is going on in an incredibly important geopolitical conflict right now, which I have to say, a lot of bullshit is being spoken about on, on all sides. So I, I hope we have done something to clear that up and to further understanding of all of this.
1: Let's wrap up there. Aaron, a real pleasure to be joined by you on a Friday night. Michael Walker. You know, we've got, we, the people talk about realism and foreign policy and learning, uh, learning that tradition. You've got John Mearsheimer, George Kennan. We can add that. list now, Michael Walker.
0: I'm happy with that. I'll go with that. I think just, just learning about stuff is actually one of the best starting points as opposed to just applying whatever ideological framework you use. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Novara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to NovaraMedia.com support.